amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief at the New Books Network. And just a warning about the following interview. We had a bad phone connection, and so the audio is a little bit rough. But in any case, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Good day, and welcome to New Books and South Asian Studies hosted by Dara and Jarya out of Bombay, India. It's a long way from Bombay to the Uzbek capital Tashkent, but not so long that the British in India weren't worried about the Russian presence out there. Not much that they could do about it though. Once Mikhail Chernyayev conquered Tashkent in 1865, the Russians set about building a colonial city as complete as any you might see across the Indus with railways, government buildings, native bazaars and a bunch of people all often wanting very different things and living in very different ways. What bound them was that they were all a part of Russia's colonizing drive in Central Asia. Jeff Sahadev, Associate Professor of European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at Ottawa's Carleton University, is going to talk to us about life in Russian Tashkent. In between setting up grandiose edifices, parlaying with the local notables and preventing or trying to prevent outbreaks of cholera, Russians in Tashkent managed to enjoy themselves as well. In the Tashkent of 1883, there were apparently all for Russian use, 12 wine and vodka distilleries, 11 breweries, 7 winemaking enterprises and hundreds of taverns and other drinking establishments and no bookstores, said the outraged writer of that missive. But for all you folks out there today, Jeff's book makes up for that. Um, good morning, Professor Sahadev. Good morning. Um, thank you very much for doing this for the New Books Network, and it's a pleasure to have you talk to us about your book. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, uh, to start off with, could you tell our listeners something about your academic career to date? Okay, well, I'm an associate professor at Carleton University now. After I got my PhD, I did uh, three years teaching at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and then moved back home to Canada, uh, where I'm from, and I'm the director now at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the Carleton University. And uh, please tell us something about your research to date, because you've already done quite a lot of work on Central Asia. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by Central Asia, and uh, the book was my my first major research. I've continued now looking primarily into questions of migration and diaspora, 
cross-cultural relations between uh, different peoples of Central Asia and Russia, looking a little bit as well now at the Caucasus and trying to understand the way that the North and South and some of these questions of colonialism and identity work in the region. Um, so, can you tell us something about how this book grew out of your research and how you came to write it? Okay, yeah, this, this book came really out of a, a desire to understand uh, when, when I was going to university, it was when the Soviet Union was collapsing uh, with the Gorbachev era and Perestroika, and we just started to hear about these people, like Uzbeks, Tajiks, that we had never really heard about too much before, uh, and when I started to understand not just the nationalism that was coming from the area, but primarily a lot of the economic questions, like the cotton monoculture that the the Soviets had put into the region made me think that these uh, were colonized areas. Uh, having studied a bit on British and French colonialism, I really wanted to understand how Central Asia fit into a more global pattern of, of colonialism. I just became fascinated by the people, the wealth, uh, the culture too, so uh, I was really excited when I got a chance to do a PhD to go to Tashkent to do research on the ground. Uh, and this project evolved from looking at the Soviet period really to, to understand it, Tashkent, as it moved from its very beginning after the Russian conquest in 1865. Um, so, okay, the book is about Russian colonial society in Tashkent. So, can you just summarize the book for us, you know, in a nutshell, maybe? Sure. Yeah, the book is a, is a study, an urban study of how. Uh, colonial state interacts with its colonized population. Really, the complexities of uh, the way power is exercised on the one hand, because certainly Russians across the social spectrum exploited Central Asians in a variety of ways, both uh, formal and informal, but also that colonialism is a very unstable uh, and often ambiguous situation thing, where there were certain people among the Central Asian population that benefited from colonial rule. Uh, a new city grew, it tripled in size, both Russians and Central Asians came in, there were divisions among race and class lines, as well as uh, gender lines as well, so all these kinds of different hierarchies interacted. So what I wanted to do was look at Tashkent as a laboratory for colonial rule and, and to place the city into a global colonial context in the Russian Empire as well. But I argue that uh, Russia was, as France was, really Western imperial power. They're not as weak sometimes as they say that they are. And also, the colonialism uh, was something that the Russians were very interested in, both economic and political, but it, it took its own trajectory. It was very unique, and the Central Asian population also had its own They weren't just passive uh, victims, but they were actually active for a significant part in the way that Ashley developed. You just mentioned that it's an urban study, so this is, because also they say that this is a book about how, you know, the urban environment and colonialism interacted with each other. Yeah, I was really fascinating when you thought we the story at first, but again, I started thinking about looking at the 1920s and 1930s, but once I started reading the newspapers from the very first Russian conquest in 1865, to really understand how they, they built their own city right next to the Asian city. And to understand how that city grew and developed from the ground up, I just found fascinating. And the way they structured it very consciously from the beginning as a mark of difference. They actually used very telling models. So they used St. Petersburg, and also they were looking at the Paris after 1848 
as modern the major cities as a military city, uh, symbol of European power. And then I started to look at the ways that the neighborhoods developed, and we had a, an Asian city and a Russian city, which were separate, but there was also interactions between so I looked at things like architecture and urban planning. I hadn't really planned to at the beginning, but uh, it just became so important when I looked and I studied how Russian Asian perceived and acted uh, as colonizers and colonizers. Um, so when did the Russians first start coming into Tashkent? Well, the Russians uh, conquered the city in 1865. There had been some relationships before then, but it was really, even when they conquered it, there were very few Russians on the ground. And for the first two or three years, it just had a small military garrison there. Because the Russians weren't really quite sure what to do with it. They conquered it mainly because uh, there was competition with Britain and they, they wanted to gain a certain bit of imperial glory after the Crimean War. And they, they desired to have... Uh, great strength, but they didn't really have any concrete settlement. So the pace of growing started slowly, and we had a beginning of a, uh, a sort of settler colony only in the 1880s once the cotton economy started. But after that, it starts to pick up very rapidly. So from no Russians in 1865 to 4,000 we went up getting about 100,000 by 1917. Uh, lots of peasants coming in to settle there, taking advantage of the public economy. Railway workers, once the railway comes, that's a big boost to cash uh, population as well. So it develops quite rapidly uh, in the end. It has become, by the uh, beginning of the century, the large um, so when the Russians came in, I mean, Tashkent was already a fairly well-developed city. I mean, I do a lot of work on the British in India. The major city is the British in India. You know, they were kind of like created by the British, Bombay, Calcutta, Madras. There wasn't that much of a native metropolitan presence. So this was obviously something that was not the case in Tashkent. So how did these early arrivals, you know, interact with the local city's dynamics? Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. Of course, the Russians, when they built uh, Tashkent, they were operating on British Indian models and also models of the French used in Algeria and Africa. So they wanted to build their own separate city. But as you say, Tashkent itself is already very established. Almost, almost 100,000 people probably at the time. Uh, and what's quite interesting, of course, is that even though the Russians were colonizers, the Central Asians were, were generally far wealthier. And so what you had when the Russian city began operating is that they really relied on the Central Asian population for a lot of the necessities of life. For example, uh, there were Central Asian merchants that were trading with the Russians, and uh, the Russians had to hire Central Asian engineers to build water canals into the Russian city. So there was, from the very beginning, this is sort of this strange duality established. Where clearly, the Russians had superior military, military power, but they themselves were conscious of the fact that they were quite dependent on the Central Asian population. That uh, goes through right until 1917, the sense of inferiority and frustration among the Russians that they were still so dependent on what's very advanced uh, city of Tashkent at the time, continues to advance with this Russian supremacy. Um, so, obviously, the earliest Russians to come in were the military guys. And uh, if you want to fast forward to General Kaufman's time, I mean, could you tell us something about his engagement well, with Russia and Central Asia as a whole? 
Yeah, Kaufman was the very first uh, <coughs> governor general of the region. His, his plan was not just to make it a military settlement, but really to make it a center of Russian civilization in Asia. So he brought in not just uh, soldiers and also engineers and as well. You started to get people in the military service who were doing things like ethnography, geographers, uh, people who were looking at uh, how to advance the land and how to make it really part of a Russian empire that would be uh, seen by St. Petersburg and Moscow as not just an integral part of the Russian empire, but in fact uh, a leading edge of the Russian empire. There's a chance that we could build a new city with a new population. You wouldn't have the, the historical uh, backwardness that you had in the certain days through the 19th century. So they built things like museums, like libraries, uh, and they kept agitating for railroads, the trade fairs, and these kinds of things. So really from the 1870s on, there was a sense among the population that they wanted to the population. They were building a modern city, a uh, modern colonial city, a modern global city in Central Asia. The problem was, was that the Russians in St. Petersburg also saw some of the city that was full of corruption. A lot of people went there and tried to take money from the center. And there was that duality as well. People who were very advanced and very intellectual were thinking that there were several officers who were, who were quite corrupt. And that dynamic was another thing that trusted a lot of people in Central Asia. But obviously it was not just a military and gradually the city came to support a very diverse section of Russian society. So who were all these sections, who were the main groups of like Russians who were present in Tashkent? Right, yeah, to start there were uh, primarily, again, the, the first people who went there were, primar- were military officers, but they started to divide as the Tashkent, especially became the center for control for the entire region in Turkestan. You had not just military officers who were uh, supervising the soldiers, we had military officers in uh, housing projects, you had military officers who were running the bureaucracy, uh, and then you started to build a, a cash camp by the city government in 1877, so you had a lot of administrators there. We also had a number of Russian merchants who were coming to the 1870s because they started to gain a very significant presence. Uh, and you start to get then growing numbers of soldiers there, some of whom retired in Tashkent and became a working force. And then as the continent economy grows and the Russian economy stagnates in the 1880s, you start to get significant numbers of Russian peasants who went there to try and find jobs, try and find uh, some kind of better life in Tashkent. They ended up living in the industrial suburbs of the city. So whereas the, the Russian pop from the other stuff, they could build a city wealthier or modern Russians started getting a lot of the peasants and the dirty Russians who came in and, and that became explicit within the Russian community as well. Um, you mentioned that there was a lot of conflict between different classes of Russians, especially you mentioned the issue of the railway station as being a site, a contested site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the so railway station was one of these sites where for, for decades the railway comes to Tashkent directly. To, 1906, the first station is built, and there's other, there's other sort of railway links since a little bit before then. But it was a good few decades after the uh, Russian conquest. Often others have been saying for decades, we need a railway station, we need to be connected, we'll be a, a vital part of the Russian economy. So on the one hand, it was quite popular, but what happened when we got to the railway station was about Russian workers there. And so you didn't then just have for these poor Russian workers who were, say, working in... Uh, rough cotton manufacturing or, or working with a 
wine factories or something. But the railway workers who came were very skilled workers, and also this was a time of labor trouble in, in the Russian Empire as a whole, of course, as you know from a number of other works. And what ended up happening with a lot of the Russian railway workers who came to Tashkent were people who had been exiled from St. Petersburg and Moscow because of their socialist and revolutionary beliefs. So it became a place where you had not just class conflict in terms of the, the origins, but very conscious classes being developed by railway workers who believe, because of their education, claimed to share of power in the city. Therefore, uh, that became, in the beginning of the 20th century, perhaps a, a greater uh, worry for colonial administrators than any Central Asian kind of colonial that probably and uh, what about the women? Obviously, they also had a very mixed experience of living in a colonial outpost, I think. Yeah, gender was always a really interesting category. It was one that, in a way, took me a while to get it, because you certainly had, as you have a Christian India, the image of the Russian woman as being a symbol of culture and civilization, and there was an effort to really keep women isolated from uh, the population. But at the same time, women, uh, especially the lower classes, they had to interact more, they had to go shopping, they uh, had to do daily life, especially because there were a lot of Central Asian merchants and uh, Central Asian water engineers who ran the canals, there was a significant interaction. And one of my most enjoyable parts of the book was when I looked at this woman's riot attachment in 1916, because it was there really for the first time that you were able to get the voices of the women, because these are uh, government involved in the riot, and they would all well, my friend said that this is what happened, this is what women were so upset, uh, and many of the women, much of women resented the fact that they had to be the situation versus the food, and that they were the prices. prices. So there was this huge divide among Russian women, and lower class women as well, um, because the lower class women couldn't really afford the price of the population. Uh, whereas the elite women often would say, well, their lives were very boring in Russian Tashkent because uh, their husbands were always out hunting and birds by themselves. Uh, so it's an interesting dynamic. The one thing that I saw no evidence of, I, I really worked hard to ensure this happened, was the sort of relationship between Russian women and Jewish men. Uh, to other colonial uh, environments, you see some evidence of that. I think the Russians have been very hard to cover up any kind of cross-ethnic relationships because of the required cheap production of women separate from Chile and the other Well, you would say that uh, Russian women engage the local population on uh, many different levels. Yes, they did, and, and I think uh, overall, it, it's really complicated. This is one of the reasons why uh, I felt, I wouldn't say frustrated, but if there's ever a case I wanted more sources, it's when I wanted more voices from these people on these sort of daily life encounters, uh, because you get newspapers and things like that who have uh, of stories about Central Asian people. Towards the assimilation life, but they won't tell you about the interaction between the two. So it's really when I got these, uh, and sometimes the reports of crime as well, and uh, there was the issue of prostitution too that we didn't hit them. So that was another thing that the, the Russian population could recognize, which are primarily Russian women active prostitutes, and it was okay if the Russian men were the customers, and the Central Asian men became customers. It became a very uh, tenuous proposition. There was a always various proposals to try and 
to keep some kind of a red light district kind of hidden away from the from the center of the city, but they could never really solve the problem on hand. That was one of the things that you did get a lot of actual information on. They were worried about that. Um, what they didn't talk about were um, like children from relationships and you know, bad marriages uh, because of the difference between Islam and Christianity. So there was interaction with all of these different levels and uh, it's, it's something that the women uh, complained about on the, on the one hand that they had few of these insulations, but certainly they recognized, for example, that insulations often had the cheapest prices for this kind of food, for that kind of are good, and, and that they really depended on these kinds of uh, issues. Um, so, basically, you say that how did the local population, you know, engage uh, with the Russian, how did they perceive the Russian presence? I mean, a lot of them, they seem to have risen to very high positions in, like, Holando society. Yeah, it was, it's interesting, too, because in the, in the Russian, uh, the Russian city, which was built separately, uh, of course, the boundaries weren't uh, fixed between Russian colonial society or Russian Tashkent and the Asian city of Tashkent. So the local population crossed quite freely into the, the city every day. They worked as business people. Uh, they worked as uh, as engineers. They worked as merchants. Uh, they worked uh, as unskilled labor too. And really, for a lot of them, uh, the Russian city brought a new uh, source of economic vitality. So there was a sense for many Central Asians because the Asian Tashkent doubles in size in the context of the Russian Revolution. And that's because there were more opportunities. But at the same time, you did have cases where Central Asians became uh, very upset at Russian rule. And I write about a, a riot, a cholera riot in 1892, and there were some other disturbances then, too. But Central Asians decided were were had adjusted themselves to the fact that Russians were ruling over the region, but they, what they didn't want were Russians interfering with their cultural and religious everyday lives. So Russians telling them uh, when to pray, how to bury their bodies, for example, how uh, how to work, how how to live culturally. So as long as that wasn't uh, wasn't reached, this local population. They, they did tend to revolt. But there was always an underlying tension there that pops up from time to time in riots and in, in fights and things like that uh, throughout the imperial period. And then in the Soviet period, you get a massive civil war that goes on, partly as a result of the cotton economy, which has left the region uh, dependent on uh, Russia for food. And there's no food. That's when you start to get the major ethnic uh, tension wars. And uh, you mentioned the, like, the East, uh, Eastern European immigrants and maybe the poorer Russian settlers. So they were obviously the third element in this uh, city. Obviously, you mentioned that the Russians had very ambivalent feelings about them, but uh, how did the local populace react to them? Yeah, this, this is always really interesting. Again, it's another uh, difficulty of looking at the time period here is you don't, we don't get a lot of voices from the local population in terms of how they reacted day to day. But you do in the archives, and I really dug deep for this, trying to find out uh, how, usually for sort of cases of criminal cases, sometimes you've got testimonies that will tell you how people tended to react when somebody uh, brought somebody else to court. But you, you, you've got a sense in, in of shared interest in a, in a way. And certainly even in the in World War One, at the beginning of the revolution, you had, say, Central Asian peasants who were 
looking for markets to sell their food to, and Russian workers were buying their food. Uh, but this, uh, react, this relationship that was quite um, productive for both sides. But on the other hand, I run across a number of incidents where, say, Russian soldiers uh, would go into the Central Asian city and start to beat up Central Asian merchants if they didn't give them food or, or goods or something like that. Um, or, and you've got Central Asian officials, or so Russian officials who go into the Central Asian town and demand bribes or extra taxes. Uh, and there were these sort of daily reactions that showed clearly that the Russians had colonial power in the region, therefore, uh, the Central Asians always had to, to understand that at any point they could be asked for uh, extra taxes or bribes or could be subject to physical violence. But it, wasn't, it was never really clear to me, again, another question that I, I wish I could have had better sources for, to what extent every day the Central Asians thought about this, that they cursed the Russians every day, or did they just accept Russian control as a fact of life? Uh, obviously, different, different Central Asians have had different views on this, but uh, it's, again, when you're dealing with colonial situations, you get so much more uh, evidence from the colonizers than you do the colonized. That's one reason why... Uh, for my next project, I turned to oral histories and trying to get people to actually talk to me. Uh, I always thought if I could only talk to these people when they were, uh, when they were alive, I could understand much more than they understood, uh, from the archival and speaking research that we did. That's very interesting. Uh, what did you use to, you know, for sources? Can you tell us something about the source materials you used for the book? <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a multiple uh, search strategy where mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons I switched really to going earlier in the imperial period was I found the imperial era mm-hmm. newspapers were really wonderful sources to, to look at. And you had the official newspaper, Tukestensky of Vietnamosti, or the Tukestensky Chronicle, which started from the, almost from the conquest, started in the late 1860s and went through right until the revolution and you start to get increasing numbers of uh, newspapers and also by and the Kyrgyzstan Chronicle has sort of a, a local language supplement well that tended not to talk too much of the daily life but after 1905 you started to get newspapers written in Uzbek, uh, Uzbek language as well those were a major source. But I went to various archives, the Central State Archive in Tashkent. Uh, I went to the, the District Archive, the Sydney Archive, um, Film and Photography Archive. And you're almost working like a detective in those archives, trying to figure out which files would be better uh, than others. So I tended to find a lot of information, say, uh, police files with the police uh, were sort of surveying the local population, uh, also in complaints and petitions from the local population to the authorities who provide useful files. And then, as I mentioned, these, these riots and disturbances generated often a lot of people from the guards administration. Uh, and then, in addition, I used, uh, urban planning for architecture, so you could maps and things like that. There's also a beautiful, a uh, couple of beautiful collections. One of them is uh, the Turkestan album, which is uh, something that Governor General Kaufman compiled with a photographer in 1871, which is about 1,200 photos of Tashkent and, and Turkestan. Uh, so I used photography as a, as a source there as well. And also a Turkestan collection, which is a 500 volume of clippings from newspapers and journals that were, were collected as part of the, the Tashkent Library. Uh, so there are all kinds of beautiful sources to use that uh, I really enjoyed working with, and I think gave a really nice tapestry of Tashkent, notwithstanding the fact that I, I, I missed some of these sort of everyday life things I wish I could have done more.
yeah that must have been interesting i mean going to the sources but uh, going back uh, to the issue of how the local population perceive the russian you know you mentioned that there is a certain you know tension and you talk about the cholera right in 1892 i mean that's a sort of recurring theme you know when you talk about colonial studies okay like you know the colonizing power wants to come and take some measures maybe it was like plague control in india and the locals don't really like it um why do you think like this sort of thing happened like was there a lack of like communication between the colonizer and the colonized I, i think in this case there was and i think in fact uh colonial up to that point depended depended on a certain almost uh planned lack of communication and that before 1892 the the russians that is the central asian sort of elites notables rural asian tashkent under certain conditions of course they had to provide tax revenue um they had to promise to be loyal but the, the russians didn't really get an understanding of what the asian city was like and what the dynamics were because they ruled it quite indirectly which was an understandable strategy it's much cheaper to to not have to pay administrators just to tell them okay we'll, we'll pay some a few centralization notables but then we'll force them almost to get their salaries back to the taxes they collect so it was a strategy that, that worked relatively well and of course one that was duplicated across the colonial world but the problem was when cholera came this was something that the russians decided they couldn't let the central asians deal with on their own because of course cholera is an extremely contagious disease and so they went in to try and uh tell the centralizations what to do and to try and say okay we have these european methods of uh solving the treating diseases and we're going to tell you how to uh take care of your water supply how to treat your bed we're going to tell you how to heal your wounded uh and these are things that to the local population were things were areas that the russians were not supposed to meddle in they had meddled in even since the us uh and when the russians and the russians were doing this and, and also at the same time they're telling centralizations do it our way they're also giving all their funding for for houses of healing and things like that to the russian city uh so they were for example banning local population from burying their dead until they could be inspected whether they were infected with the cholera virus or not but then they didn't send out people to to inspect them so for sure for days to abide lying on the ground and uh there's a, a point where centralizations just thought that they were being uh their cultural values were being disrespected and then issues like uh issues of control and colonial power comes up once the population gets uh, very frustrated uh so it's it's it showed a lot of different things it showed this sort of one particular moment that it became frustrating but when you start to read the the transcripts of the riot people did lash out at the russians overall and said that these are the these are people who are ruling over us not only with no understanding of the of the, of the region but people who don't consider legitimate rulers uh at the same time Russians always been having military control uh slaughtered a number of central asians that day uh and then later on the the population does end up settling down so it shows both the limits and the extent of colonial power in the end but yes of course the russians really didn't understand they didn't want to understand uh central asian society in the society I mean you do mention that uh, the incident actually shows how the Russians had to depend on influential central asian leaders you know to maintain the peace as is wondering like whether these leaders they could they were actually in a position to you know maybe command both sides you know like obviously they the russians thought they were in charge of the local population and obviously the local population maybe they saw them as intermediaries 
Yeah, it's a fast, they're, they're a fascinating group, and again, one that I, I wish uh, we could get more of their voices on. So we, we, we look at their actions as they're interpreted through various various actors. And Catherine's inside, uh, some of the Russians at the time would call them, uh, would almost be dismissive of them, say, so collaborators, they sold out their own school, even if they're working with us. Um, but when you look at the way that people acted, and there were various numbers of them, some of these Central Asians who became mediators or, or work with the Russians, they moved to the Russian city, they started to wear Russian clothing, uh, they really just, uh, adapted the Russian as a European lifestyle, became uh, associated with the Russian elites. But it doesn't necessarily mean that even for these people, they abandoned their own population. They still had this family. Uh, wasn't they? Whenever they sort of worked with the Russians, they would always be very careful to try and let make the Russians understand what Central Asian culture was about. They tell the Russians, okay, here's what you can do, and here's what you can't do. So in 1892, for example, before this cholera riot, many of the Central Asian leaders were going to the Russian uh, administrators saying, uh, you can't tell us to not to bury our dead, or you can't tell us to uh, force us to bury us bury the dead in graveyards outside of the center of the city, but you can't tell us to, to not use our water in this particular way, because these are, are important values to us. And uh, so they, they tried, in, in very essence, to soften the globalism, and there were certainly a number of cases where they tried, for example, to, to get away, get their own local population to pay less taxes. Uh, they represented the population very well, I think. So it's very difficult to make any kind of moral judgments about these people because they, yes, they were working with the Russians and they associated with the Russians, but uh, you also get a sense that uh, when they tried very hard to cushion the blow from the local population, so it really is a fascinating question. And every, every person who worked with the Russians, I think, had their own different uh, equation of how they balanced uh, this work with the relationship with their family, with the district, with the neighborhood, uh, or with the, the local population in the city of the world. Um, and I was just wondering uh, how representative was Tashkent of Russian colonial cities as a whole, or at least, you know, Central Asian Russian colonial cities? Yeah, I, I think in the end, we um, had these models in cities across uh, across Turkestan. So, most representative, for example, in Samarkand, we had a sort of Russian city outside the, uh, the uh, Asian city there. Even in Bukhara, you had a small Russian settlement. And Tashkent really became uh, the administrative capital of this, this a model not just in terms of urban planning, but it really set the tone for the relationships between the Russian population and the Central Asian population. What I'd like to see still even more work being done on it is looking at some of these colonial cities in comparison, for example, looking at Tashkent compared to, say, Tbilisi or Vilnius uh, or, or something like that, because I think what you do get is similar uh, is you get the Russian administrative military model. In fact, I remember when I was walking to uh, Helsinki not long ago, remind Helsinki, in fact, as a city, reminds me of Tashkent that they're both a Russian military city on the outposts. They both had a, they both had similar representatives. In fact, you've got people like Hoffman and some of the other governors general. They serve a few years in Tashkent and they go to uh, to Tiflis or Tbilisi. Uh, then they go to Warsaw. So they had a very similar model. 
and I think you, you've got in, 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 in the same sense a lot of things that were quite unique about the Russian Empire and the Russians were uh, very uncertain about their relations with the local population. It wasn't a case like in the British case where the British were very confident in their superiority. Russians always thought they were a little bit inferior because they were they had this superiority complex towards Europe and not both these sixteen various cities. But I think a lot of work still needs to be done on trying to understand the various models of Russian colonial cities. So, I mean, you mentioned you've done some work on British and French colonialism. So, would you say that, I don't know, British imperial cities were rather more anglicized, you know, more overtly colonial than Russian cities or something? I, yeah, it's, it's, a, again, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I necessarily uh, make one or other determination. I think the Russian Jews modeled their colonial cities on uh, the British and French. Uh, some of the differences were not just what the Russians did, but it was also what the Central Asians did, as we were mentioning earlier on, that the Central Asian population of this case, although I'm sure in many Indian cities, right, you had a very wealthy merchant class uh, and a, a local population that was also intervening in the way that Russian colonial rule was, I think one of the major differences was that the, the Russian anxiety level was higher. And one of the reasons for that was that Russians didn't still really have a sense of, of who they were as Russians. It wasn't really a strong Russian national identity. Uh, so when you had these two Russians coming in as Russian peasants, the Russians are still trying to build this identity after the great reforms as modern European uh, kind of civilizers, uh, people who were not just uh, were not just European colonizers, but in fact sort of more gentle They always would say, well, the British conquered India very cruelly, and there's all these horrible things. We, we treat our populations very nicely, which was, there's a little bit of mythology in that, but uh, they they had these images of themselves, but then these two Russians came in, for example, and they had, um, they were doing alcohol, they were abusing the Central Asian population, and they were untrustworthy. There, there was a, a great deal of, of ambiguity there, and I think the Russians just never were really able to gain a clear sense. They sort of hope when they conquer Tashkent, this will show us what Russians are, because we'll be a strong colonizing people, and their, the experience was very different, and I think that, that, that lack of initial certainty in their own national mission um, led to a greater deal of frustration in the British and French cases. Um, coming back to Tashkent, I mean, obviously the city went through a lot of changes, 1905, and then the Great War, and then the 1917 Revolution, and then finally independence. So how did the dynamics of the city, you know, change and evolve throughout these years? Yeah, it changed uh, in so many different ways. You have a city that um, was just a tiny encampment in, in the 1860s to uh, a city by the revolution that was one of the central struggles for uh, the Bolsheviks. I think um, probably if we were to look at a couple of different points, it really changed the relationship and in the sense they're related. But um, the, the cotton, once the cotton economy really starts to take off in the 1890s and 1900s, really changed the way that the Russians were uh, looking at the region because all of a sudden there's a profitable good there and a significant amount of Russian migration. And after 1905, too, uh, Russians were encouraging migration to Central Asia, but really a massive influx there of Russian settlers and Russian peasants. And so uh, land issues became much more contested. 
uh, and that was related to with the Russian railway, which is, in fact, initially built more for military reasons, to become an economic driver, too. So Tashkent becomes much more integrated to the economic life of the empire. Uh, and that's why when the Bolsheviks come to power in 1917, Central is a long way away from Moscow and St. Petersburg. In fact, uh, in the Civil War, Tashkent and Turkestan were cut off completely from Central Russia. So you would think that perhaps the Bolsheviks might just let it go because it would have bigger problems. But the cotton economy is so important for Central Russia because, for example, cotton in Tashkent and in Uzbekistan was, was necessary to keep the factories in Moscow. So they had to reconquer it. Of course, what you then had was a, a whole different generation of rulers, which were the railway workers who arrived in 1905, 1900, who moved to the Tashkent Soviet, and they had their own conflict with the population as well. Now, the Central Asian population has become uh, far more diverse. Uh, you have movements, liberal intellectual movements that were educated in the time period as well. So there are so many different changes in, in the time period that I was dealing with. But those are some of the key turning points. And, um, so how did the you know, ultimate like, Soviet withdrawal from Tashkent affect the city in the sense that it created a power vacuum at the top or something? It did create a power vacuum, and it, it, it came at a, certain, at a time period where there was uh, famine in the region, uh, and part of this was, was the cause of the fact that cotton was so highly developed was, uh, when so, with so much land in order to cotton, there was sort of a famine, and with the world war being cut off in northern Russia, the Tashkent had been dependent on food from northern Russia since about 1905, uh, and then after this time, without the food there, ethnic relations had become far more strained. Uh, but it was also raised to the fact that once the 1917 revolution came, without central power, the local Central Asian population, which has become uh, far more assertive in its desire for political power, also made claims to the region. Said, well, now that the Darst Empire is gone, real, uh, we should be the rightful inheritors of political power. So you had a, an all-out struggle in this power vacuum between the Tashkent Soviet and the railway workers and the so-called Kokan Autonomy, which is a a uh, government set up in Kokon by a number of Central Asian um, nationalists, various types of Muslims to Muslim clerics to liberal Jadids, Muslims to the more progressive in outlook. Uh, and in fact, both of them sent telegrams to Moscow after the revolution. Uh, demanding that they be supported. Uh, Central Asian would say, well, we're the exploited peoples of the region, you should support us. The Russian workers say, well, we're the, the class, uh, we're the working class, you should support us. And, uh, and I remember getting, seeing a telegram from Stalin saying, well, you guys just sort of fight it out and tell me to win. And at this time, about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of combination of famine and uh, violence in this time. So, uh, over a decade, so how do uh, modern Tashkent, I don't know, civic leaders view the colonial legacy? I mean, what's the colonial legacy like in terms of maybe, I don't know, expat industrial houses or even, you know, the physical structure, the architecture, the buildings? Right. If colonial architecture, colonialism remains uh, a hallmark in many ways. I think obviously the, the cotton uh, economy that was put back in place by the Soviets remains one of the, the most important legacies because what's happened now is even though the region is independent, they've continued that economic model 
of just pouring cotton, not just, but just being a major export good. Uh, and that has led to, uh, really, I think, a continuation of this big divide between the elite and the poor populations, the people who control the resources, even though now they're Uzbeks instead of Russians, uh, and the population of the working class. a lot of the issues today. Um, it's interesting in terms of the architecture, because uh, the, the, the colonial architecture really maintained itself until the earthquake of Tashkent in the late 1960s, and after that, the city was rebuilt again in a very different style, but it's still uh, and very European, it is built in sort of a more modern Soviet sense. So the idea that Tashkent was a city that was going to be very modern, that's going to be sort of a model for that part of Central Asia and the Korean world, still uh, has a hallmark. And even now, I remember when I was there in the late, 19, in the late 1990s, with independent Uzbekistan, I thought, well, there are bits and pieces of old Asian city. I was hoping that the Uzbek government would kind of restore them as um, hallmarks of, of what Asian Tashkent used to be like and what the, the Uzbek sort of national heritage was, but instead they destroyed them to many ways of modern sort of European style office buildings, uh, which was a real shame. But uh, there is also a, a museum of repression now in Tashkent, so the Uzbek government, they, they portrayed the Tsarist uh, era as, as one where the Uzbek population was um, severely uh, repressed, uh, but at the same time, these colonial legacies continue to, to function very clearly in Tashkent today. Um, that was very interesting, and uh, thank you for being for the New Books Network. So, where do you think your future research would take you? This been Russian Central Asia. What are you currently working on? You know, and actually, so I, I'm taking my research in a sense the opposite direction now. When I was looking at this project at Russian uh, colonialism and Russian settlers going to Central Asia, what, I'm, what I've been working on for the last few years has been looking at uh, Central Asian diaspora who went to Russia, primarily Moscow and Leningrad, and the suspected project looks at the postal uh, war two period and looking as well at some of the Caucasus migrants too. So people from uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Azerbaijan, who lived and worked in, in Moscow and Leningrad in the in the late Soviet period. And this was inspired by the first time I went to Moscow, which was 1992, and I'd always thought of Moscow would be a Russian city, but you saw tens of thousands of people from the Caucasus in Central Asia, Africa, China. Uh, Moscow is a true multi-ethnic city. So I really wanted to get a sense of, of how these population dynamics work then uh, in the Russian heartland, unlike when I was looking at the Central Asian heartland. And as I said, because I'm looking at a more recent period, I can do oral histories. And that's been a lot of fun for me to do, to try and get some of these uh, resources that uh, I wish I could have had when I was looking at my uh, Tashkent project uh, earlier on. Um, that sounds uh, fascinating. And uh, do let us know when your next work comes out. And uh, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network. It's a pleasure having had you on board. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed uh, very much talking about my book. So, Fox. A great talk that takes us right back to Kaufman's times. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 